you. Thank you, team. Please be seated, everyone. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to everyone online. Those of you who know me know that I'm an engineer, uh, and so it's probably a little bit odd for you to be hearing the conclusion, the, the, the end point of a whole series on emotionally healthy spirituality from an engineer, because engineers are not world-renowned for being completely in contact with emotions or indeed having structured functional relationships with a lot of people around them. We tend to like to avoid people and stick with our numbers and just deal with emotions the way they should be dealt with by just burying them deep down inside where they belong. I am reliably assured, however, that that is not actually a healthy way of dealing with things. And we've set this series up to look at, as Ben pointed out, ways of how do we make ourselves more whole by being both emotionally mature and spiritually mature and healthy when we bring those things together. Now, I had, there's a very good reason why we didn't call this emotionally healthy spiritual maturity, because maturity implies an end point. It implies that we've already got there, and as my wife and children frequently remind me, uh, I most certainly have not reached maturity. Indeed, I did anticipate at one stage, I thought quite quite amusing, it amused myself, uh, and I tested it out with Rach and the kids, whether or not I, could, or not I could do an entire sermon in a pirate voice. Well, it's great to be here, and I'll have you be walking off the plank if you know be listening to me. Anyway, that kept me amused for a long period of time, um, and I, as I rehearsed portions of the sermon like that around the house... Uh, my family did not think it was as wise and as deep as I thought it was. Yes, <laughs> it is a bit harsh. <laughs> but the great part about series like this is that they speak as much or indeed more to the people who are preaching them as it does to us as a community. And we have sought to step out and say, well, how are we, how are we going as a community? How are we holding up as a church? How are we holding up as a family? And particularly in these times where things are very challenged and there's a lot of stuff going on in our world that we don't have control over, that we can feel powerless at times or disconnected from the things that are happening around us. And so the reason we called it whole, aside from the fact that I couldn't pronounce emotional, healthy spirituality in the first sermon that I preached... Um, The reason we call it whole is because we recognise that the strength of ourselves as individuals is both what is physically happening in our lives, what's happening emotionally in our lives, and what's happening spiritually, and we can't disconnect those things from each other. As Christians, sometimes we can think that if we're just a bit more spiritual, we will be better, and and our lives will be better. But in fact, all the teaching that is in the Bible and all the lessons we can learn out of the Bible says, no, that's not true, that we cannot disconnect spirituality from physicality and from emotionality and bringing those things all together. And so, irrespective of my underlying levels of immaturity, we, uh, and irrespective of any of your underlying levels of immaturity and your appreciation of my pirate accents or not, we can all have areas of our lives that we can work on together. We can all get more healthy. And a critical part of understanding that is recognising that particularly in this era that we live in, an era of Instagram, of Facebook, of the social media, where we can get very hung up 
on looking at what other people are doing in their lives. We can see images of other people's lives very easily and, and in, in a way that we've never been able to see them before. And we can scroll through our phones or on the computer or on the iPad and see snapshots of people's lives that look aspirational and we can believe that we should be more like that. And indeed, many of us start to look at those, look at images on, on Instagram or in, images in, in media and aspire to be more like one of those things that we've seen. And yet, we know that when we go into the mirror and as much as I suck my gut in and I try and sort of hold my muscles to the side or maybe even just like push a fist under my bicep to make it look a little bit bigger, there is nothing that is going to make me look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm not sure what that images that is there for you but each of us either subconsciously or consciously are all searching to try and connect to that and yet that image that looks back in us in the mirror is never something that matches that expectation and that can really damage and can weaken our understanding of our identity. Dr Augustus Napier is a psychologist and therapist and he does a lot of work in family therapy and he wrote this, that the greatest impediment to changes in our minds seem to lie not in the visible world of conscious intent, but in the murky realm of the unconscious mind. And what he's really getting at there is that we can have all the good intent in the world, and I have great intent of one day doing exercise, one day in the future, at a long point in the future, but we can have great intent to do things in our conscious mind, but very often the things that are holding us back are actually things embedded deep down in our unconscious. And unless we're able to pull those, up, pull those open or open the door on it and bring some light into it, we will always struggle to be able to progress in that which we choose to do in our lives. Emotionally healthy spirituality is opening the door on that subconscious and bringing forth some of those things that exist in our life and trying to understand how are they holding me back? How, how do those things that I do that I don't even realise that I do prevent me from achieving and being the whole person that God wants me to be? So we, we've spent, and this is the eighth week of an eight-week series, we've spent a long time working our way through, through these topics. And I'm going to take you through as a summary if you've been sitting through all the previous seven sermons, then this is your opportunity to check out for a bit and you can say, I've learnt all this already, I don't need it, just dial me in at the end of the message and I'll give you a little bit of a ding, that's when you have to chime back in because it's new content. If you haven't listened to the series or you're new or you haven't got all of the, um, you haven't, you've missed some of them, then we're going to give you a run through, which will mean that next week you'll be able to talk about the entire series as though you listened to it all, but without actually having to do the hard work. So, what have we actually worked through? One of the things that we started with is that to be spiritually and emotionally grounded, we actually have to understand our identity. We have to understand who we are. And there's a lot of self-help books around that will give you insight as to how to become the better you and who is the person you need to be the person that you need to be which is a very circular reference when you think about it, but very much focused on you've got to find you so that you can be you the way you want to be the you that you want to be. 
and you build this sense of identity that is solely about who you are. And it is dreadfully important and, and incredibly important that you do have a strong sense of self. But just as important as understanding who you are, is in, is, is in, it is as important to know whose you are. Who do you belong to? And one of the great joys of understanding our faith as Christians is we start to realise that we are someone's. We are are created in God's image. We are created by God. In Ephesians 4, 22 verses, 20, yeah, four verse, chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul writes, "'Throw off your old sinful nature "'and your former way of life "'which is corrupted by lust and deception. "'Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes "'and put on your new nature, "'created to be like God, truly righteous and holy not to created to be god we're not becoming gods in our own selves we're not standalone beings who are disconnected from everything else but to be like god and to reflect the portion of god that god has put into each one of us we need to know who we are but just as importantly we need to know whose we are if we don't start with that then we have nothing else to build on in understanding who we are, we also have to understand how the past impacts today and in the future. We have all had different pasts and some of those pasts have been more tragic than others. Some of them have been filled with more mistakes than others. One of the things that fills me with great peace when I read the Bible is the fact that it is so full of flawed characters if you're going to go and write the Bible just to try and inspire people to do good things, you wouldn't write so many stories of people who so consistently screwed things up over and over again. But that's what it is because the Bible isn't a collection of stories just for the fun of it. It's a collection of insights into people's lives who have done terrible things. We're people who've made terrible mistakes, yet through that have been able to determine how they were able to step forward to be informed by their past but not defined by it. One of the most profound things for me when we read of the crucifixion scenes and we read of Christ's death is we spend a lot of time thinking about what happened to Jesus, as we rightly should. But for me, there's one particular passage in the Bible that really, really stands extremely starkly and gives us an insight as to the great hope we have in Christ's salvation and that's at the moment where Peter in just in those early hours of the dawn in Jerusalem a busy city a bustling city a city that would have heard the clanking and jangle of centurions and their 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 the Roman legions marching through the city it had the the yells and the noise of the markets it would have had the baying mobs who were screaming out for Jesus to be killed. It had life and hustle and bustle around it. And yet in that city, the one time where it would be properly quiet and properly contemplative would actually be in that morning, just that time, just before dawn. The very first hints of the new day are just starting to come on the horizon. The temperature would have dropped to the lowest point overnight. The air would be still 
it would be a moment where you can feel truly at one with the world, but also truly alone. And at that moment, in that silence, a rooster crowed. And that sound must have pierced Peter's heart in a way that gives me goosebumps to think about it. Because on that morning, it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a rooster crowing. It was a siren song that was calling to Peter to say, you failed. Because at that point in Matthew 26, verse 75, as Peter had heard that, that uh, rooster crowing, suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even knew me. And he went away, weeping bitterly. And bitterly is such a powerful word at that point because it gives you that sense of the anguish that he must have felt inside. He knew that he had failed. And yet, and yet he woke up the next day and the next day and the next day and he was able to march through and take possession of the promise that Christ had given him. The, this, the man who had denied Christ was the same man who the entire church was built on. One of the greatest movements, religious movements in the history of the world was built upon the man who denied Christ three times. Peter was absolutely informed by his past, but he was not defined by it. He was not constrained by it. And I'm sure that every time he heard a rooster crow for the rest of his life, he still remembered what it meant, but it ultimately didn't limit him from going on and doing what it was that God had called him to do. So we need to understand our identity. We need to understand how to live beyond our own failures, but live beyond yesterday. We also need to understand how to surrender. Our lives are full of things that go wrong. As Christians, we can sometimes over-spiritualise it and we can feel like, oh, well, I stubbed my toe, That's, therefore it's a sign that, that, that Satan's out to attack me and sometimes you stub your toe just because you weren't wearing your shoes and you weren't looking at where you were going, but it still hurts a lot. Things happen in our life that just happened. There'll be a car accident that you didn't expect or an illness in your family that you was unplanned. Or that, well, no one plans an illness, but there was an illness that you didn't expect. Things happen. And if we have a knowledge of how to deal with that pressure, then when the pressure comes on, we don't burst. When the pressure comes on, we don't suddenly crumble. We know how to have the resilience through that and part of that resilience is the understanding of surrender. Yeah. Knowing how to avoid denial, the, the knowing how to be able to move on from ignoring what has gone on in our life. I tried to remember what the five stages of grief were before and I couldn't actually get them all out correctly but it doesn't matter because what actually matters at the end of the five stages in whatever order you do them in, and I'm reliably assured by Arthur who intervened during between the services that it doesn't matter which order you do them in as long as you get to acceptance. And the acceptance that we need in an emotionally healthy spirituality is one that we cannot change that which has occurred 
but what matters is how we surrender into it and allow that good grieving can actually be something that is healthy in our life. And indeed, good grieving can be a blessing to others. Identity, living beyond yesterday, surrendering, but looking forward and living beyond our limits. As Christians, we can be so delightfully humble. You ask someone to do something, oh, I couldn't do that. There are people who have done fantastic or shared really well on this platform over the last number of weeks who, when asked to to share, would say, I can't do that. There's people in the Next Level crew who, when we talk to them about having to get on stage, they say, I can't do that. And yet when they get on there, they have made such an impact in the words that they've been able to share. Sometimes we put ourselves into boxes of either I can't or I feel like I shouldn't because of something else that has happened or even worse, I won't. And we see through the Bible over and over again people like Paul and uh, Peter and, and Moses who, who said I can't. Moses who said I can't, do, I can't lead the Israelites out of um, Egypt. We see people like Peter who say, I shouldn't because of the things that have happened in my life. And I see, we see people like Gideon who said, I, I can't because I'm, I'm not well enough repaired. I don't have all the things that I need. And we see people like Jonah who said, I won't. We need to move beyond the boxes that we put us out around ourselves and trust that when that request has come, Jesus is behind it and God is behind it and that's something that we can live into, that we need to be able to move beyond those limits. It's a conversation I have with some of my staff quite regularly is if we are asked to do something and and many of our, particularly some of our younger staff, will at times, time from times to say, oh look, I can't do that. We'll actually sit them down and say, well when when you say that to me, that's not, that's not being humble because what you're actually saying is you don't trust me. You have a staff member sitting there and go, no, no, I really do trust you. I said, well, if you trust me, then you need to trust me that when I ask you to do it, I believe you can do it because I believe you're equipped. And it doesn't mean I'm going to leave you alone, but I trust that you need to trust me that I'm actually smart enough at what I do to know that I think you can do this. That's what living beyond limits in an emotionally healthy, spiritual way is, is that when we're asked to do something, we acknowledge that however uncomfortable it might be, the fact that we've been asked to do it means that someone else genuinely believes we can do it. And if they believe we can do it, then we should believe in it ourselves. Identity, living beyond tomorrow, surrender, living beyond the limits breathing. I was genuinely delighted when we sat down and worked through who was going to do all the sermons to realise that Dave was Dave Keane was going to do this particular uh, sermon, the sermon on breathing and resting and the importance of not being busy because the alternative was that I was going to do it and I knew that both Dave and I, it was going to be deeply ironic for either of us to be doing it and I figure it was far better for him to do it because uh, it was not quite as pointed. But the point of rest is that in the creation. The, f- the first thing that God did after he'd finished creating the world was to pause, not because he was tired, 
I'm pretty sure that if you, if you're, you, if you are omniscient, omniscient enough, omnipotent enough, omnipresent enough to create an entire universe, that you're probably not going to be tired at the end of it. God's pause on the seventh day wasn't because he was tired, it was because he wanted to rest in that which he'd created. And sometimes we get ourselves hooked into this idea that being busy is what matters and being busy in church and if we just do more, it will matter more. But rest is actually really critical. Rest isn't just sitting on your backside staring at the ceiling. It can be. It can be lying on a beach, but it can also be doing things that allow you the opportunity to contemplate and to delight in the world that you're in, to delight in a relationship with God. Now, two things that I love doing, uh, either mountain biking or rock climbing, I'm not particularly great at each of those things. I'm good enough such that I'm still standing, which is good. Um, But what I find that in my life, I have so much going on with work and so many things happening that if I, if I sit down for a while, all I do is think about that stuff. And the great joy for me of, of rock climbing is that when you are on the wall and when you're on facing a piece of rock, there is absolutely no point thinking about the rock you've just climbed. And there's absolutely no point thinking about the rock that's ahead of you because the rock that's ahead of you can only get there if you actually make a step forward or a, a climb forward. And so it narrows your focus from being this wide and brings it right back down to a moment where you have to work out where am I going to put my hand next. And same with mountain biking. If, you, if any of you have been biking before, then you know that you're out on a te- technical part of the, the trail. If you let your mind wander, your mind wanders and your back wheel wanders out behind you and you end up on your backside and the bike goes over your head and then your mobile phone phones in half and then you have grazes on your shoulders, all things that I can describe in great detail because I've done that. And so to do that well, you have to narrow your focus in. But in that provides that opportunity of, for me at least, clarity of being able to not think about other stuff. And in that moment is often the time that I feel the greatest connection to God because it's the point where it's just me and a moment and a me and a point in time where God is able to speak without all of the busyness coming around us. So breathing in that idea of being able to set, find a point in your life where you are able to not just rest, but to delight in the Lord and delight in that relationship, but to be in deep contemplation, to be able to engage with God and with his world is critical. And in doing that, it leads us to the last point, which is to love to be loved. We can get very, and as Janet spoke about last week, as Christians we can get very well known for the things that we're against. We can get very well known for the things that we don't love, for the things that we don't like about the world. But the reality is, is we are commanded to love the things that God loves. The starting point is actually, here's all the things you should love. And we see that in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbour as yourself. This is a completely revolutionary statement. 
because it comes at the end of hundreds of years of history by which God's laws were defined by the things you couldn't do rather than the things you could. And in this moment, Jesus has commanded his followers and his people to say there's only two things. Love me, love the people that I created. Love me, love my children. Love me, love the things that I love. As Christians, we can't profess to be full of love and be full of God's love unless we can actually love the things that God loves himself. And it's okay to find joy in the world. It's okay to enjoy the creation. It's okay to have friends who aren't Christians. It's okay to have a good time out of church. True. You can. I know. I know it's a shock, but we can get so hooked up in an idea of spirituality that says, I can only really be happy if I'm in church on Sunday morning with my hands in the air singing praise and worship songs. And that's a great thing to do. But that's not all of who we are. And it's not all of God's creation. We are commanded to love who God loves and what God loves. And so we get to the the end of those six things that we've sort of talked about over the last number of weeks, where we've talked about identity, living beyond yesterday, understanding how to surrender, living beyond limits, being able to breathe and to rest, and then loving what God's loved. But where do we go to from there? How do we close that out? And I feel a bit bad because in many respects, we've given Peter and Paul a bit of a bum, oh, sorry, Peter and Moses, a bit of a bum rap over the last number of weeks. We've pointed out all of their manifest failings. We spent a lot of time talking about Moses and the fact that he'd killed people. We talked about the different times that Peter had lost his faith or denied things. And I feel sure that at some stage I'll be in heaven and I'll have to go to Peter and sort of apologise for having dwelt so much on those things. But the great part about the Bible, as I mentioned before, is it is full of flawed characters who have been able to live beyond that and build a life beyond it. And it's because of that that we can then look to the words of Peter towards the end of his life. We're going to read out of um, 2 Peter chapter 1 in a moment. And this is a point in Peter's life where he had been through the whole gamut of emotions in his relationship with Christ from never having just being a fisherman to deciding to follow to believing that he had all the faith to then denying him and then being in the room with Jesus when he came back to starting sending out the apostles and building the church. And at the end of his life, as he can see what the end of his life is likely to be, and he knows that it's going to be, it's already been prophesied over him that Peter will end his life in pain. He will end his life crucified upside down because he, well, he was going to be crucified anyway, but he chose to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to share the cross with Jesus. He knew what was coming. And at this point, he writes to the churches to express what is on his heart. What has he learnt over all that period of time? And we read in Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. So he starts by being clear on who his identity is. He's been clear in his name, but more importantly, he's been clear that he is a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. 
I'm writing to you, to, to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Saviour. Justice and fairness are words that Peter would have understood so deeply because he had felt the full weight of being distanced from Jesus and yet the, the forgiveness that came from it. May God, in verse 2, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Peter knew that there wasn't an end point. There wasn't a point where you just go, that's it, I've done the right courses, I've been to the, I've read, listened to the right podcasts, I've read the right books, I've now got there, I'm whole. He recognised that it was a journey, that he wanted more and more and more, and that that was okay. And that gives us the confidence that we ourselves, wherever we are on this journey of understanding our identity and our limits and barriers and all of those things, we are all on a journey. He goes on in verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvellous glory and excellence. And because of his great glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. We have here Peter now saying, look, there are promises that have been given. I know who I am and I know who my purpose is, but that purpose rests on a promise. The promise of our Lord and Saviour. And as he explores further what we are to do with that, he goes into verse 5. He said, because of that purpose and because of that identity and because of that promise, in view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you'll be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks again then, to our purpose, that we, he wants us to be productive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So moral excellence, what does it mean? It means integrity. It means that he wants us to strive to be image bearers of God, that he wants us to be people for whom others say, that's how, that's how we aspire to behave. One of the things that caused me greatest angst as a Christian is when you hear of people who profess to be Christians yet have not shown integrity in their work life or their business life. When you hear of someone who's, who goes to church every Sunday but then slanders people on the weekends, on, the, on, on Mondays, and someone who runs a business and you find out that he actually runs a crooked business but he still turns up to church on Sunday. We're commanded, we're directed to strive for integrity and moral excellence in our life. We're directed to build more knowledge. Now, there's an, depending on your translation, I'll either use the word knowledge or wisdom. My preference is the word wisdom. There's an aphorism in, in the work that I do with, uh, we have lots of engineers and data analysts and 
It's very easy to collect lots of data. And the aphorism goes like this, that data is not information and information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. That to make data into information, you have to apply context. You have to explain what do the numbers mean? What is this reference point that I'm looking at? Give it context. But to make information into knowledge, I need, need to wrap around that context and understanding of what to do with it. I need to know what should I do with this information. That's what knowledge is. But wisdom takes it a step further. Wisdom is knowing whether you should do something or not. Just because you know stuff doesn't always mean you should do stuff. And as Christians, sometimes we can confuse the knowledge we have of the Word with the wisdom of whether or not we, how we should be sharing that with other people. So we, it commands us to try and build integrity, to build, to strive towards greater wisdom to build our self-control, to understand who owns our actions. The only people who own our actions are ourselves. And we are to then manage anger and manage that frustration and build within us that sense of constraint in who we actually are. The next one's one of my favourites, is patient endurance. As we talked before around beyond yesterday and surrender and being able to live beyond limits. The idea of patience endurance is something that's quite eloquent in the way it's phrased. We often confuse that with stoicism and the sort of the, the English concept of a stiff upper lip and just ignore reality and strive on. It'll be all right, old chap, we'll carry forth. And patient endurance is something that's slightly different because it acknowledges the fact that the challenge exists. Stoicism sort of says, I'm just going to push through despite the, the, the challenge. And a patient endures acknowledges that it exists and says, this is going to take effort. Endurance is something that requires me to build the energy or maintain the energy to push through. And the patience is there to acknowledge that it will have an end and my job is to sit through it. Patient endurance is something we should strive for in how we manage ourselves. And brotherly affection and love for everyone. Connect back into that idea of loving to be loved, loving those things that God loves. But I think it's really important here that he talks about both brotherly affection and love for everyone. Because it's very easy to say, I love the world, without actually maintaining the capacity to have an affection for the people around you. And as Christians, we can sometimes be like that. We can be hyper-spiritual in our sense of we love the world and we're for missions and we're going to do this, but we actually lack the affection to be able to sit down with people and, and share time together and, share and build relationships with each other. But equally, we have people who are really good at spending time one-on-one but struggle to understand how to relate the world and Peter exhorts us to do both to have that brotherly affection and the love for everyone. So, why does it matter that we are whole? Why does it matter that we should strive to be whole? It matters because Peter gives us his example in his life that he had been through all of these turmoils, all of these challenges, and yet even at the end of his life, he was challenging himself and others to strive for greater wholeness. 
He challenges us because God is challenging us. God wants us to live beyond the limits that we impose upon ourselves. He wants to live beyond the lies that we tell ourselves and that others tell ourselves about who we are. He wants us to live beyond our own sins and the sins of others upon us. He'll live beyond our grief. He wants to live us to live beyond our busyness, beyond our own insecurities and beyond our fear of loving or our fear of being loved. He wants us to be whole because to be whole is to allow us to be the truest reflection of his, himself in our lives and in doing so to be a true reflection of him in the world. As I said before, and as, as the team's coming up, we're going to join shortly in, in worship. This is a journey. This is something that we do together, and we're not doing it by ourselves. We're not, not islands sitting separately from each other. Full, emotional, healthy spirituality ensures that we understand our purpose. And our purpose is simply summed up as this. We are created to be in relationship with God. We are created to be in relationship with him through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. It's really simple. We're created to be in relationship with him. He wants to be in relationship with us. He yearns to be in relationship with us. But he doesn't want to do that with you sitting in a dark room eating organic celery, contemplating your navel and being an island to yourself. He didn't make you a little God. He made you in the likeness of God. You reflect part of who God is. But we can only see the fullness of God when we see the fullness of of his creation, which means the fullness of his family. So as much as he created us to be in relationship with him, he created us to be in relationship with his family. But he also created us to be in relationship with a family that needs to get bigger. He created us to be in relationship with family members who don't even know that there's a family that they're not part of. He created us to love all of his creation. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Emotionally healthy spirituality, full wholeness, demands that we understand who we are, that we live beyond our past, that we surrender to those things that we can't control, that we are able to move beyond the I can't, that I shouldn't, that I won't, demands that we breathe and that we love those things that God has loved and it demands that we look forward to having the impact that we can and it demands that we do that so that we are in relationship with God, we're in relationship with his family but we're doing so 
because we're doing it in a relationship with Christ. Emotional, healthy spirituality is nothing without Jesus. It does not exist and has no weight unless it is all about Jesus. Can I please ask you to stand? We're going to finish and we're going to sing together and we're going to pray together. We do these things together as a family. It might be odd to you. It might be a little bit weird singing and and praying together, but we do it because as a family we bring our voice together. Not because it's super spiritual, but because there's something that connects us together when we stand with others and sing to our God of the great sacrifice of our Jesus. That something unites us and ties us together. It makes us more whole to do so. And likewise, when we pray, when we bring our common thoughts and prayers together, it brings us to a stronger relationship with God, but a stronger relationship to his family. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this time together. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to be able to do it in a time of peace and without persecution when so many others in the world are suffering peace and persecution are suffering from warfare and and persecution and challenges to them being able to meet together there are people in the world who aren't even able to speak your name for fear of death and yet we have the privilege of coming into your house today lord i just ask that you touch each one of us here that you give us insights into how we can build our life to become more whole, to become more emotionally healthy in our spirituality, to become stronger in our relationship with you, or stronger in our relationship with our family, and to grow that family built on the promises of Jesus. This is why we have our heads bowed. If there's anyone here today who hasn't heard this promise before, or hasn't properly understood what this purpose is in their life, then I'm going to ask you just to raise your your hand. There's nothing magical going to happen. There's not lightning going to fall down upon you. But it's an act of surrender to say, that's the purpose that I need to sign up to. That's the purpose that I've been looking for. That's a promise that I need to fulfill who I am. If that's you, then just lift your hand now. Thank you, I can see. Thank you. This is your time to recognize that your identity, your reason for being, the great joy of coming into this house and coming to know Jesus is that you are wanted, that you are loved, that you are made in the image of God and that it is built on a promise of our Lord and Saviour. Amen.